0: The internet is a vast and sometimes scary place. It's constantly changing with a dark underbelly that the average user scarcely sees. Tracking all of it is Census, a company that maintains a comprehensive internet map used for threat hunting. In this episode of Merit Talking, I'm joined by Matt Lembright, Director of Federal Applications at Census. Matt first got involved in cybersecurity more than a decade ago as an Army intelligence officer, where he created and led the Army's first cyber analysis company. Today, we'll explore the findings in the 2023 State of the Internet Report from Census and how federal agencies can adapt to the security vulnerabilities it uncovered. Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely, thanks for having me. Yeah, so let's get started. Um, Census, you guys are an internet intelligence platform used for cyber threat hunting and assessing attack surfaces. In a nutshell, you map the internet, as we mentioned, and the data you gather is used by your customers to defend themselves. I'm hoping you can unpack that for me a little bit here. Uh, this this idea of mapping the internet almost seems like an impossible task because of how vast it is and how quickly it changes. So how do you guys do it and how much data are we talking about?
1: Sure, absolutely. Yeah, and I think uh, it's interesting you mentioned that. I think. Uh... The reason this started out uh, is because our founder and his colleagues had the same question, really. Uh, They were University of Michigan uh, going through their doctoral thesis and wondering, you know, how, you know, can we scan the entire internet? Can we get valuable data from it? And how fast can we do it? The answer to all that was essentially yes, out of their doctoral thesis. At the time, though, it was pretty, pretty slow. It was impressive. um, But over time, you know, we've taken that same model and Basically, increased the speed. Uh, you know, added places from which we scan across the globe, and made sure that all of that data is correlated against one another. And what we call passive scanning, so that we also make sure that you know what we scan, we we are um, delicate with, so that we can continue to get uh, information across the internet. So, really, you know, when it boils down to it, we we scan you know every single day across the entire internet. And, you know, when it comes down to it, we keep all of that data basically since the beginning of our journey. So as you can imagine, that's quite a data store that's, you know, dozens of terabytes. We get, uh, you know, new certificates every single day that we ingest. Uh, But really for us, it's all about making sure that we have that complete picture because, you know, our customers have, uh, as you mentioned, they have interests in threat hunting and defense, but the questions that we get across our data platform are extremely vast and so it's important that we map it as accurately and as detailed as possible so that over the course of something like an investigation or trend analysis those folks can get the answers they need
0: that's awesome and you said something really interesting there which is that you keep all the data you know since inception of the organization basically so i'm curious how you guys analyze that data over time and how that specifically helps you anticipate kind of the future steps across the internet?
1: Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so we've got you know up to about seven years of, of stored data at this point, point. and really um, you know the the leveraging our data from a historical or a temporal aspect uh, can kind of have a couple of different applications, right? So uh, one of those is you know going through what we see currently on the internet and finding what might be, you know, interesting, suspicious. This kind of goes along the lines of our Russian ransomware uh, C2 investigation and identification, where, you know, we found hosts of interest, but, uh, you know, at the time that we see them, there isn't anything that's that's necessarily a smoking gun, if you will. But that's where the history comes in, right? It allows us to understand different hosts and, and assets that we see in the internet, and really kind of start to Put together a behavior or a, or a pattern analysis of some of those hosts that we can understand their their journey over over months or maybe even years. Um, understand if those things switch hands or maybe even switch functions within the same group, and that's kind of what we're observing now with some of these these ransomware actors. And then, kind of on a on a macro uh, aspect, uh, we're looking also at things like connectivity or you know instances of software in different parts of the globe. Different profiles of the internet, including you know local ISPs, enclaves, and really all these trends to kind of number one, see if we see anomalies, see if we see patterns, but then kind of overlay that across you know um, geopolitical events or just events across the globe. Sometimes they're natural disasters, sometimes they're invasions, and the idea is that if we can start to kind of see some of those correlations, especially if they're If we see some of those signatures on the internet before some of those events happen, uh, our goal is to kind of put that in greater context. And as those things occur, kind of create as many kind of correlated data points so that we can provide that information to the folks that need to make decisions uh, before those events occur to, you know, mitigate uh, damage, to mitigate adversarial actions. Um, So that's really where we're going with the data that we get and where the history plays such an important aspect of our data.
0: Absolutely. And I want to talk a little bit about those folks that you support, right? So thinking about the audience today, Meritox audience spans the Department of Defense, the intelligence community folks, as well as the federal civilian agencies that are listening in here today. I'd say that you guys are pretty well-kept secret, right? Partly due to a lot of your work with the three-letter agencies. But for many of the folks that I've spoken to that use census, it's almost table stakes, right? The capability is sort of an expectation. So I'm curious, you know, what worlds in the federal space kind of beyond the intelligence community and the DOD that you guys already work with stand to kind of benefit from what you're doing over there at Census?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question, actually. And um, I think there's a couple of different avenues, right? Kind of in the civilian sector, I think the biggest piece Well, actually kind of another point I'll, I'll bring up possibly later. But, you know, there's this, yeah, you know, first understanding what we do, right? Understanding that we see the externally exposed internet globally on a daily basis, uh, on a near real time, or as close to near real time as one can get right now in terms of visibility externally. And I think you know, for for some agencies that have, you know, they've got federated networks, they've got subordinate organizations that they need to understand their security posture. But might not have the personnel, or and I understand that's another you know challenge, right? Is the cybersecurity skills gap, you know, where there's a lot of analysts needed, uh, and a lot of the folks that come on board are you know fresh out of training, fresh out of college, or even the military and what have you, and they need to get going right away. And so, from a defensive aspect, in addition to you know finding you know bad guys and gals on the internet, in addition to doing the threat hunting and the geopolitics piece, some folks just want to see what their slice of the internet looks like, and To set up a scanning architecture, you know, most folks have internal scanning, which is great, and it's definitely an aspect that's needed. I think where we really come in and can really assist a lot of those folks is that obviously the external piece and, and setting up an architecture that is allows folks to have actionable intelligence that they can use to remediate within 24 hours. That's a key piece, right? Because the longer a vulnerability or an exposure sits out there, of course, the the higher the probability that it's going to be exploited. So, that's I think a real key piece. It's you know I liken it to the roving security patrol, right? That that drives around in, in security cars outside of a campus or or what have you to let folks know what doors and windows are open. I think it's a an important aspect that um, that we gap that we fill currently on the law enforcement side, you know, that's really where our pivoting our data and and being able to pivot from one host or one asset of interest uh, to another, but then also explore, like I mentioned before, historically, right? So that if criminals are trying to cover their tracks, a lot of that effort, at least from my understanding, has been focused on covering tracks after they've conducted an exploit. But in terms of kind of external posture, that's kind of a new concept, I think, to a lot of them, at least from what we've seen in some of the threat actors that we've been able to locate. And, you know, it's kind of a, uh, it's almost like, you know, having Google Maps on your phone or having your phone with you, right? It's it's always on and it's going to be hard to kind of trick the system. We We see what's out there on the exposed internet. And I don't think a lot of threat actors take that into consideration. So from a criminal aspect, I think it's helpful for uh, law enforcement that might have to build kind of a a real hefty docket of information before they move forward with uh, investigations and prosecutions. So, you know, it really at the end of the day, it's what I think folks can ask themselves: is would I see a benefit to observing external internet exposed assets, whether they be my own or whether they be someone else's over time, so that I can make decisions? The answer is yes. We can definitely get to that question and that answer for a lot of folks very quickly.
0: Yeah, thanks for that, Matt. I I think you touched on a lot of really excellent points and discussions that are playing out across the federal space. You talked about how you guys are augmenting the workforce and helping solve some of those ongoing cybersecurity workforce shortages across the federal government. You support a number of different potential missions and use cases across federal. And beyond that, you mentioned federated agencies and how many of them you know, have this large footprint. You talk about law enforcement. Just thinking about the number of subcomponent agencies at DHS, uh, the potential uses are vast. So that's really great. And now let's get into what you guys are finding, right? We touched on it a little bit in the front end here, but this kind of scouring of the internet that you guys are doing led to this 2023 state of the internet report that census released. Just walk me through some of the most important findings and some of the security risks that that study exposed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I would say the biggest, probably the biggest takeaway here, and I don't know if it's a surprise to anyone, uh, I think it might not get the, the headlines that uh, things like vulnerabilities and zero days might get, but misconfigurations, right? Just exposures uh, that folks are, you know, seemingly unaware of, or at least you know, they, they might have forgotten about. Still, a huge, huge problem. I think you might uh, have seen this, but uh, there were we found over 8,000 servers hosting open directories containing, you know, what appeared to us to be sensitive files, so credential files, SSL and SSH private keys database info, backups, CSVs or spreadsheets with with personally identifiable information on it. We determined this, you know, of course, we didn't access or, or download any of these things. We just found these just through uh, naming conventions and file sizes. But it really was not hard for uh, our researchers to find these things, uh, which is extremely concerning. And I think when we hear a lot of uh, exposures of PII, we hear a lot of data leakages and things like that. You know, we don't always get the full story. I know that's always because, you know, lawyers are involved and uh, equities need to be protected and whatnot. But for folks that are trying to understand how these things happen and what can be done about it, you know, this is what we see. Uh, and if we're able to see it, that means someone with enough interest and enough capability can also see it, which is not that much capability is required to do this. You know, our assessment was pretty easy for a threat actor to weaponize this, to kind of just see what's available. It's much easier to a uh, walk in and unlock door than it is to try to uh, pick a lock or bust a door open, right? So that's what they're doing—kind of path of least resistance—to uh, be able to find some of these uh, directories and and files that might be sensitive to either the company, uh, their customers, or both. I would say that's kind of one of the the biggest pieces that we see. And and a related tangent to that as well, uh, from what we see, kind of on the on the federal research side too, is that. You know, we look at critical infrastructure quite a bit. and in order to do that, we look for things like operational technology protocols and software. And again, we see the same thing, right? We see uh, water treatment plants and gas stations and all manner of different types of of arguably critical infrastructure that doesn't require a, a complicated phishing campaign, right if if there's a door open, they don't need to kind of sneak their way in. They can just kind of walk in. and so, that was kind of the probably the biggest concern that we had seen across this entire report.
0: Yeah, awesome. And I think you bring up a really, really salient point, right? Misconfigurations. It's not in terms of things that could go wrong. This isn't a sexy topic. You get more of the eye-grabbing attention from these vulnerabilities and these big exotic zero days, right? But this is super important, right? You think about one of the biggest incidents to occur in the federal government, it was solar winds, right? And that was essentially a misconfiguration issue. So I'm curious if you guys um, have studied that one and maybe what's changed since or improved since SolarWinds as a result of this kind of understanding around misconfigurations.
1: Sure. Yeah. And that's something that we're we're always kind of taking a look at. Uh, We have seen some remediation around SolarWinds. We can always get you some specific numbers there. But We do still kind of see kind of a steady state of of exposures when it comes to solar winds. Now, of course, that has to we have to take into consideration, uh, you know, folks that are still using solar winds and, uh, you know, might have. I think what was the interesting part for us was that during the solar winds kind of crisis, if you will. Right. And right after the announcement of, of the issue. You know, we saw quite a bit of SolarWinds uh, devices out there, uh, kind of at the peak point, if you will, and then, you know, shortly within the next hours and days after that initial observation, we saw it drop off sharply. However, uh, the interesting piece was is that we started to then kind of see it uptick. The idea there, at least our analysis of it, was that we started to see some of those folks kind of come back online. The idea basically being, if I'm network administrator or a CIO or CISO. I know I have these these vulnerable uh, SolarWinds instances, I'm gonna take them offline, I'm gonna get them uh, updated, I'm gonna get them patched, I'm gonna get them configured and with enough security controls that I'm comfortable bringing them back online and that's what we saw. But that being said, we still saw a significant amount of SolarWinds even at the trough of that uh, peak, if you will, Uh, still running, uh, never went offline, Uh, presumably had never been been updated uh, and never had been uh, re-protected again uh, against the initial issue. And so that's kind of what we see. I think what this is kind of just an unfounded theory, but uh, I think a a pretty valid one is that I just don't think that uh, everyone gets the same message. And I think, uh, or maybe they do, but they don't get the context around it. And I think that's an important point that I know CISA has done a lot of great work around that. And I think that's, you know, continuing that work is getting the message out there, I think is the hard part, especially for um, number one, organizations that might not have the robust security management frameworks or personnel that a larger organization might have, but also some of the organizations that rely on third party vendors or you know, your MSSPs of the world where. There's an assumption that they're doing those things, but, you know, trust but verify, right? They don't always know exactly the inner workings. And I think some of those conversations can be a little bit more detailed. So um, so that's kind of what we've we've discovered uh, kind of over the course of the past few years.
0: It's really great. You're taking some of the thoughts right out of my head. I'm thinking about how you mentioned Cis so is getting a lot of guidance out there, right? And, you know, you think about when there's something important to remediate, You've got binding operational directives. You've got all of this literature and guidance coming out there, but oftentimes we're only as strong as the weakest link in the chain, right? You alluded to how some of these shops are often less resource, uh, relying on contractors and other third parties. And so they, you know, they don't have the ability to deal with some of these issues with quite the the pace of some of the larger organizations or more resourced organizations. I want to shift to another aspect of the report that we found really interesting. It's those four letters that most people skip typing when they, um, when they're putting in a URL into a web browser, HTTP, right? You guys found that you know 18 percent of all services running HTTP on the internet were hosted in one of the four major hyperscalers, um, the cloud providers, Amazon, Oracle, Google, Microsoft, Azure. But you know, for those that don't know, HTTP encompasses so many different services running on the internet not just web servers, but also load balancers, web-based APIs. What did you guys found find regarding HTTP? And with this kind of heavy slant towards these major cloud providers, what does that open us up to? Or is there anything that we should be concerned about?
1: Sure, yeah. Um, so to the first part, you know, um, as you mentioned, HTTP, I, it's, I think that's probably an obvious one for a lot of folks. But I think what's interesting about HTTP, right, and especially like, you know, how we go about on the federal team kind of finding critical infrastructure and, and determining whether or not it's kind of report worthy, right, is you've got all your other different protocols, your telnets, insecure protocols that you want to be alerted to. But the key thing for me is when we find, like if I'm a threat actor and I'm trying to find a an organization or a target and I find IP addresses that I think that they own, you know, hosts that they own that are on the public internet, what I'll do a lot of times to try to find a lot of that is start with operations technology protocols, which I kind of mentioned before, which is great. It gets you, it lets you know that the thing that you're looking for is probably the function that it, it performs. In other words, it's a the fuel tank gauge, it's a water treatment facility. But then the next step is again: Are any doors or windows open? Can I can I find anything, uh, or can I confirm what this is or what functions it performs? And what we found is that for a lot of these operational technology uh, devices that we find on the Internet, they're there because folks want to access them remotely. They want to understand from, you know, 20 miles away, 300 miles away, if the water treatment facility is, is still operating as it should. In order to do that, they leave HTTP open. And you can gain an immense amount of information from some of these consoles that are out there, whether it be a building controller uh, interface or, again, like a water treatment console, uh, admin console. It also provides a lot of different opportunities for further access and manipulation. So having that HTTP out there and combining it with some of the other searches that one might do, you can gain not only an immense amount of context, but you can gain really kind of an avenue into the operational technology, without having to launch a months-long phishing uh, campaign against the organization to eventually laterally get yourself to where you can manipulate something that's that's physical uh, in, from an operational technology standpoint. So I think that's one really big aspect is that HTTP, when threat actors are out there, to me, it's a really helpful piece to kind of layer on top of and make one's job easier to kind of confirm what they're looking at. Kind of on a good news story with HTTP, though, that we found is that there's a lot more folks using the newer versions of TLS from a security standpoint. So that's encouraging to see, you know, the possibility that, you know, Google might have had a hand in that with uh, Chrome and kind of alerting folks when TLS was a little bit behind the times. But, uh, you know, to your other point about the cloud providers, I think this kind of harkens back to my earlier comment about kind of watching the third-party providers, right? Uh, watching the vendors, trusting but verifying. And and having folks understand that they should watch their own cloud. You know, Yes, someone else is storing the data. Yes, someone else is maintaining it and presumably backing it up and making sure that availability is still there. But at the end of the day, it's still your data in that cloud. You're still the client. And so having a, an idea of your security posture within the cloud, not just Trusting whether it's a local uh, cloud provider or one of the bigger ones that you had mentioned, but understanding what those security postures look like and having a real-time checkup on those things. Again, like you've mentioned before, kind of the exposure management is not always the sexiest piece. It's kind of the brushing your teeth of the cybersecurity world, but we all know how important brushing one's teeth is. I think it's important for that as well because really, at the end of the day, I think of cloud providers as you know, like the storage units that are out there, right? It's they've got some basic security around the perimeter of their property but at the end of the day when you get to your locker that's your responsibility you have to put the lock on you choose which lock you're going to use and you choose how your information inside is is stored bundled and protected so i like to use that analogy so that folks can really kind of think of of how their of the relationship of their data with the cloud provider if that makes sense
0: absolutely and i'm going to just go ahead and extend your analogy then like If we're talking about brushing our teeth, I'm going to maybe ask you how folks should be flossing and you know whitening and mouthwash and all the rest of this, right? I may be asking you to boil the ocean here, but I'm curious about you know the biggest lessons learned from this report, and more importantly, the best prescriptive advice that you have for these federal agencies to respond to some of the vulnerabilities that you guys exposed here.
1: Sure, absolutely. I think the report did a fantastic job of outlining. The importance of misconfigurations and exposures, right? Because while we scan the entire internet, we do it at scale. We get a lot of data back, so and we see everything. But you know, your typical, you know, uh, whether it be a security researcher or a threat actor that's out there might not have that. Well, they don't have that capability, but they do have a, a capability to scan much in a, in a much smaller aperture if they know what they're looking for. And finding things like open ports is a, is a very trivial exercise. So. I think from a remediation priority standpoint, I really do think that the misconfiguration piece should, should stay paramount. And so, you know, part of that and and the how of going about that is I think the important piece of it is just, it's how accurate, not only how accurate is your data, but how temporally relevant? In other words, how timely is it? Because I think the important piece that we see the external signatures of issues as they come up, but we don't live in all of these different organizations. So. How these things come to pass, how these things become exposed, I think there's a number of different explanations, right? One is kind of like I mentioned before, someone, they set up a security camera system um, and the the third-party vendor that installs it needs to keep Telnet open because they want to do remote administration or they need to access it uh, or RDP or something like that. Uh, But knowing what that looks like and, and inquiring and understanding the security posture, I think is a big piece of that. But I think also there's the other part where reboots happen. There are images and policies and protocols on what standards should be implemented upon a reboot, and maybe it's an automatic reboot. So you might have a system that might be configured correctly one day, but you go through a reboot. I think we've all gone through this before on some of our own personal computers where we reboot and we might have to reinstall a driver or we might have to reconfigure Bluetooth or something like that on our devices. And I think the same thing happens with a lot of these kind of larger, uh, larger enterprises as well. So that's where the the timeliness comes in. That's where you know using a data set like ours to keep kind of a vigilant, a constant vigilance on what your assets are. And I think that's kind of the last piece that I'll kind of wrap up with this comment with is the prioritization piece. And I think that's really, again, where having accurate data, an uh, accurate external data source, Of course, like census would be helpful, Um, but it's important because it's not only I have this thing, but what does it do? And what does it do for the company? What does it do for our employees? What does it do for our customers? Because that's how you prioritize by function, right? Understanding the business functions that it performs, so that you can say where to start your journey, because like you said, it's, I know for a lot of CISOs that are listening to this, they're like, yeah, that all sounds good, but I have to boil the ocean, which you kind of mentioned before. And I think this kind of makes that ocean uh, just a little bit smaller for a lot of folks.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for that, Matt. Yeah, I really appreciate it. How about one more analogy for you then? Absolutely. (laughs) And I can't claim credit to this one, but thinking about what you guys do, some have compared it to weather forecasting, right? In the sense that you guys are like weathermen, seeing which way the internet is blowing on any particular day. I think your piece about prioritization and and how we can hone in I think that's really really important because you know it might be might be a little chilly in some spots or you know the clouds might be breaking. So can you talk to me about how data collection at census is kind of like meteorology what have you heard this analogy before and why do you think that that's that's kind of coming to the fore here?
1: I love the analogy. I I'm especially because as a kid I was quite the quite the weather buff. Um so if I hadn't If I hadn't gone this route, I might've become a meteorologist. So I think it's great though, because I mean, if you think, I mean, I remember, you know, to that point, I remember as a a kid, you know, watching the local weather, especially when we had tornado warnings and whatnot, but they were touting that they, you know, had recently bought a Doppler radar for their local weather station. And now I would argue, and I haven't kept up with it, but I think Doppler radars are pretty ubiquitous. A lot of folks have them. There's mobile Doppler radars all over the place. Nearly, I think every metro has a Doppler radar. So the point here being is that meteorology predicting the weather, not an exact science, right? I don't think it ever will be. But to say that it hasn't improved over time, I think is a 100% false statement, right? Because you look at you know, the more sensors that you have, the more ubiquitous, the more prevalent they become, the more accurate they are. And the more you can kind of leverage that data at scale, the more accurate those predictions are going to get. So if you have different sensors, kind of like we have, right, we have several global scan perspectives. We've added to that number over time uh, to create a more uh, holistic view of the Internet. We've sped up our, our scan cadences. We've widened our aperture of ports we've, you know, included the ability to detect protocols on different ports and increase that as well, as well as things like you know, improving our software fingerprinting. So I guess the point being is that, you are never going to kind of get to that perfect prediction. No one of course has a crystal ball, but as we, you know, as we approach uh, Nostradamus, so to speak, the more that we can understand what's happening in granular detail, kind of like we mentioned earlier and understand those patterns and, not only understand those patterns, but how they relate to, you know, the humans that are behind in charge of those different assets that we see, I think we can really start to kind of piece together not only what does the internet look like, but why does it matter to look at the internet and what it looks like? And what does that mean for our day-to-day lives? What can we understand about how a natural disaster might affect connectivity in Florida? Uh, What do we understand about BGP rerouting attacks possibly prior to an invasion? Are those things or indicators that, you know, intelligence analysts or researchers can use to build models to anticipate certain global events or, you know, help emergency agencies? I think there's just so many different uses. And the more that we can, you know, the more Doppler radars that we have out there, the more sensors that we have out there, the more efficiently we, we do it and the more accessible our data becomes to cyber analysts, but also I think even folks like uh, researchers and reporters and media, I think it's going to, we're going to see the efficacy and the the applicability of our data set uh, really kind of um, help everyone out.
0: That's excellent, Matt. And, you know, as a little bit of a weather skeptic myself, I'm always a little broken up about it when I forget a jacket, right? But um, glad you went this way on, on the career route, because we really appreciate all the work that you guys are doing to tell us which way the Internet is blowing on any given day. So, yeah, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate the conversation. I think we learned a lot about some really important topics and uh, looking forward to seeing what you guys are doing next. So thank you.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Joe. I really appreciate it.
0: Folks, that's all for today. To learn more about Census's federal government work, visit census.io federal. Have a great day.